this week we have uh, Isabella Rain with us. She's a fantastic, what I would call a visionary artist. And she's here to share some of her work today and talk about inspirations. And we're just gonna get into the art side of healing. So Isabella, would you care to introduce yourself and how you kind of got started in the path of being an artist? Yeah, so uh, I'm 25 years old and I've been painting and drawing since I was a kid. Um, I got into it naturally. It was just a natural way of expressing myself. Um, my dad was creative, so I kind of, I think I was inspired a little bit by that. And it was always just my way to express myself. I was a very emotional child. Mm. Um, so it kind of helped me just deal with that a little bit. And um, as I got older through my adolescence and teenage years, it was always with me. It was always what I did to um, kind of calm myself down or find some sort of solace. And um, so then I wanted to pursue it. Um, and I was gonna go to art school, but that didn't work out. So I've just been self-taught and decided to go full bore anyways, even though I couldn't go to school. So <laughs> here I am. Awesome. So I think we should just kind of jump in right into your art and then we can talk more uh, about it. And I specifically wanted to discuss how uh, art can be healing. So there's this branch of psychotherapy, which is art therapy. Uh, largely put forward by Carl Jung. And there's a lot of interesting theories around why art can be therapeutic in that way. So that's something I definitely wanted to get into. But without further, further ado, let's show some of your art. Okay, can you see this? Uh, I can. Awesome. Okay, so what is, what is this piece called? Um, this is called Letting Go. It's actually one of my newer ones that I did this year in quarantine. <laughs> Is that how so, you were feeling during quarantine? <laughs> yeah, kind of. My head was exploding. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of just a representation of getting out of what we know as being mm. comfortable and just finally letting go of that um, however we see it. Um, I think that this year in quarantine and lockdown and everything um, really shoved a lot in our faces and we had to kind of adapt to being in the unknown and mm -hmm. to letting go of everything that we knew up to that point. Um, and then it's also kind of representational of my own personal experiences uh, more emotionally and spiritually, just letting go of what no longer serves me and opening my heart and letting it, um, let that fire come out basically. Mm. What is the significance of uh, there not being really a lower body and not being a head and it being kind of this, uh, uh, like this kind of wavy type of energy or fluid or liquid or something like that? Yeah, I guess it's representational of that we are more than just this physical body. We are also you know, a soul and spirit in the body mm. and the body isn't necessarily, we aren't confined to our bodies. So it's kind of like an expansion out of that into the, into the universe, I guess, into the unknown. Um, 
and she's kind of her arms are kind of uh on fire this blue mm-hmm. flame is consuming her so it's like letting go of that that container of of humanity i guess in a way there's a lot of uh, symbolism here of fire and water. Is that something that you uh, intended? Because, of course, in the traditional Greek system of elements, you know, fire, water, earth, and air, fire and water are thought to be primary. They're meaning they're the they're the main energies of the universe, whereas earth and air are kind of secondary ones. Is there any uh, association with that? Um, not consciously, but I can see how that plays in it's kind of like the duality of fire and water um i've always been super drawn to water mm. um, i always find it really healing i always seem to end up being near a body of water but i was born and raised in the desert so maybe that's mm. the fire element it was really hot and dry and it kind of um i felt maybe scorched from that or uh hmm. like i wasn't getting the everything that i needed so i needed to come to a place that had more water and that was more nourishing for me so maybe it's showing the duality and the representation of those two elements yeah that's fascinating because in this in this painting you can see kind of a desert behind you and there's this what looks like this red very hot sun directly behind you but mostly what's going on is kind of water-based there is some fire but it's even like a like kind of bluish fire except in your heart yeah so is there some ele- element here of uh purification going on something symbolic of uh in this the phoenix it burns itself up and from its ashes becomes renewed is there some uh something like that in this would you say yeah i think absolutely um that's another thing that's been really important to me i actually have a phoenix tattooed because it's so symbolic of what i've gone through in my life and i think that me personally i seem to i always want to grow and transform and um, expand throughout my life and i always see myself uh, kind of ending cycles and letting go of what no longer serves me in order to make room for what does. Um, and that's kind of what the Phoenix does, right? It burns in the ashes, but then mm-hmm. it's reborn into a new life. Um, but I think that happens multiple times within this life. Yeah, I, I highly agree with that. And I think that it's a really deep uh, psychological metaphor and truth, the idea of the Phoenix uh, being related to how sometimes the greatest sufferings or tragedies, crises, or any other situation where we feel like we're being burnt up, where we're under a lot of pressure, can lead to a state where once you get through that, you're almost a different person. Um, and it, it speaks a lot to the spiritual traditions of uh, you know, being born again or things of that nature, where the idea is that you can't really be your full self unless you kind of die in some ways. Like you die to the past, you die to the things that are holding you back. And that process is usually really painful. And that's why uh, the Phoenix is kind of burnt up and turns into its ashes. Uh, It's also a symbol for all of life in general, because all of life is dying. And then from its ashes, literally more life comes out. So it's, it's a a symbol really of how the universe functions, not just how our, our psyche functions. So I think that's, I'm very fascinated by the Phoenix metaphor as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think we can become afraid of that change and afraid of that death or ending because we always assume the ending or, yeah, like an end to a cycle is almost like failure or we don't want to let go of what we know, so it can be really scary. But beyond that, what's on the other side of that is beautiful and it's transformative and it's a new, it's a whole new outlook or a whole new beginning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's, it's tough and it's scary and you don't really understand that there's something good on the other side. I think that's why this metaphor of the Phoenix, when understood, it could be very helpful because it could be understood, oh, I'm in a, I'm having a tough time in my life. I'm in a crisis, you know, something bad happens there's something good to come of it. I just don't know what it is. So I need to stay with it and not try to avoid it or try to, you know, sweep it under the rug. Um, I know that there is often there's a good consequence of bad things. I know uh, tragedy type of situations are what usually awaken people to the spiritual path in general, um, in my experience and what I've heard as well. Absolutely. All learning experience. Okay, so next, next painting here. This one is called Priestess of Darkness, correct? Correct. Who is the Priestess of Darkness? <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive um, right into that one. Yeah, that's a big question. So this painting in particular is kind of unique compared to all of my other work because I created her over, well, basically over one night. Hmm. Um, and I was at the time I was super creatively blocked I was in kind of a dark place um, kind of depressed and just stuck and didn't really know how to get out of it what to do I didn't feel like I was creating anything of worth and I was also just putting a lot of pressure on myself I think to create Mm -hmm. Um, so I decided that I needed to just close the door, lock everything else out and just spend some time and paint and not care what came out and just be as intuitive and detached from it as possible and not judge it too much and just let whatever needed to come out, come out. Um, So I guess that's why it happened all in one night because it just needed to get out um, so she, she's what came out. Um, I started with her face. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no plan and, um, started with her face and just kind of started seeing this figure appear and my hand was really doing all the work. I wasn't really thinking about it mm-hmm. and she's what came out and to me, I woke up, I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I saw it and I was almost kind of startled by it (laughs) Mm. because it just looked so intense to me. And I was like, whoa, you know, that all, that all just like came out last night over, overnight, basically. Um, What is your uh, kind of relationship to religion, particularly Christianity? Because this one seems to be this kind of, um, depiction of mother mary weeping there's a lot of artwork where mother mary is is crying or there's the image of you know angels crying tears of blood and things like that it has this uh almost symbolic meaning of this 
the dark side of life, I guess, for for lack of a, a specific thing? Yeah, um, well, I was raised Baptist Christian, uh, and I kind of fell away from the church, I think, when I was early teens or preteens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, it, I would say it was a big part of the foundation of what I was taught and what I grew up on. Um, but it, there's not a lot about Christianity that really stuck with me. Other than the fact I know it did give give some stability early on in life and did give some some sort of sense of community and some sense of spirituality and a higher power. Um, and I think at the time when I painted this, I was reading a book. I wish I could remember the author, but she was exploring she was exploring um, Christianity and basically all religions, Buddhism, uh, and she did it traveling to search out for the for tara and black madonna Mm. and it was kind of her experience of diving into these different religions and finding uh the the feminine god or the feminine buddha through that so it's possible that that was part of what inspired me was just like this feminine spiritual guide that came through and and i think that's kind of what i was looking for at the time was just some sort of guide or higher power within myself that i was calling upon to help guide me out of this rut or darkness that i was in Mm. yeah this painting does uh remind me of the uh, tarot card the um the high priestess the second of the major cards uh, it has even like a similar kind of posture because in that one, she's kind of just standing there and there's kind of like darkness behind her. And it's there's the metaphor goes very deep, but I think in its most basic element, what it's talking about, it's talking about the mystery of the world and how the mystery of the world is often veiled from us and not clearly seen. That's why it's uh, in the dark. It's something that not you don't get to experience all the time. It's not something that uh, some people even ever experience, the kind of breaking through the veil of this world. And I think the the high priestess, or in this one, the dark priestess, is kind of the gatekeeper between that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's very fascinating. What what uh, what do you think about the heart aspect? So there's like a heart on the left side. Yeah. So it's kind of what- subtle. Yeah, what she is to me, I believe, is she is a visual representation of of the guide out of the darkness. Mm. And she's there to kind of um, bring you through it because through the darkness, there's learning and there's things that you need to overcome and grow from. So she's there so that you're not so afraid of whatever's in the darkness. Uh, and so she's coming at it with love and light. So that's why she is this white being of light, basically. And her heart is coming through because it is out of love. It's out of love for for you to expand and to kind of come through to the other side. Mm. What do you think the fact that it's kind of very stringy, almost like mycelial, what what do you think that aspect because that's very um unique i would say about this painting i've never seen anything really like that 
I guess because she's not, she's more of a spiritual being, so she doesn't have any true solid form. She's mm. kind of all encompassing, but is, yeah, she's just this being that um, she kind of expands everywhere. So she's not just, she's not a human form, really. She's more, she's in a different realm. So she's kind of just like floating and her little like energy bubbles are floating all over the mm -hmm. place. <laughs> mm -hmm. So during the time you said that this was kind of, you were very stifled, you felt like, and this was kind of what came out of it. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the therapeutic side of art. Um, what effect do you think painting this had on you? Did it feel like it was cathartic? Did you get some insight after you painted it? I know you said you were kind of even shocked by it when you, when you saw it later in the morning. Yeah, I was shocked by it because I was surprised what happened when I just let go. Mm. And I just decided not to think and not to be attached to the outcome uh, and to see what came out. And the fact that she is symbolic of a guide, which is what I was looking for in a way. Um, so I think it, it was extremely therapeutic because it helps get me out of that rut, get me out of the darkness um, that I was in. So letting go and just being able to create without thinking about what other people are going to think, without thinking that I needed to share it with anyone and just letting go and letting it happen um, is just so, it's such a good feeling. And then to see it the next day and realize that, you know, something actually happened. And then just that release of creating it was really beneficial because it, it is, it is healing. It's therapeutic. It's, yeah, it's just like getting over that and being able to express it is really, really helpful. Do you ever uh, contemplate your artwork, like just look at it for long periods of time or um, or anything of, of that nature? Like, do you ever look at it for a while and almost, I don't even know, like communicate with it or almost, because this looks like an icon or something where you could almost even like pray to this in some sense as a connection to something within you. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I realized, because not all of it is conscious at the time. So I realize other symbolism in it as I look at it longer, or even, you know, months down the road, I will see how it related to where I was at that point in my life and mm. the symbolism that comes through it. And I always tend to see new things, especially as I grow and develop and things become more mm. aware to me. And that's the funny thing about art in general is people tend to think that there is some one definite meaning to it. Like there's some intentional meaning set by the artist. But a lot of times, especially when it's really great art, it has this element of letting go where the person isn't really necessarily deciding what to do, but it's more of an expression of their unconscious or subconscious where they're almost channeling something. So a person can make that kind of artwork like this and not even really fully understand it in some sense. And I think that's the truly beautiful art is when even the person who made it is like, wow, I kind of feel like I know what this means to some extent, but also I'm still learning what it means as I go through life. Right. Yeah. And it's really beautiful to see how other people see it as well and how it speaks to them because it can speak to someone else in a way that, that I haven't seen it yet. 
So it's really mm -hmm. cool to see how it touches other people or what they get from it. Yeah, this is one of uh, this is one of my favorite uh, pieces of your artwork that I've seen, um, and I think is really interesting because it, the color usage and everything would make it seem to be very ominous, but it doesn't have like an ominous feeling to it. Like it seemed like it would be something that might be scary or disturbing, but just by the expression on the face, it kind of makes that go away. Like if the eyes were a little bit different or something, it would be a much scarier uh, painting, for example. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I actually went back the next day and kind of, added a little more details and changed the face a little bit because I wanted it to be softer. I didn't want it to, you know, be ominous or scary or Interesting. deep so was, demonic. Was the, was the original <laughs> one kind of scarier? <laughs> no, I think maybe, um, I think maybe she had more tears coming down. I can't exactly remember, but I know that I did go back and kind of work some more on her face because it was more of a, a softer being. It wasn't demonic or dark. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, there to bring me out of the darkness. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I noticed as with the other painting, there's like no lower body. Seems to be a kind of recurring theme. Uh, I've actually had, I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, like astral projection or out of body experiences. Um, but when I uh, had a one particularly pivotal experience, I remember seeing myself kind of like hovering in front of the mirror and I didn't have any lower body, which is really, it was like kind of peculiar, but whatever that is. And I don't know if that was just a dream. It didn't seem like a dream what happened to me, but um, yeah. if that's like an aspect of what the spiritual body actually looks like, that it doesn't really have limbs especially a lower body that it's more kind of ethereal and just kind of more the face and upper body yeah that's interesting it's like the the energy centers maybe but no limbs yeah exactly i mean there's no there's no uh, chakras in the legs so maybe they just don't exist in yeah. the world <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly wouldn't travel around faster though legs are very slow yeah, but I guess in the spiritual realm, you just float and fly around. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so. you don't need legs. <laughs> yeah, All I've right, had a this, lot of dreams. <laughs> this one, uh, what is this one called? This is called Renewal. Um, and I painted this right after I moved to Portland about mm. three and a half years ago. And it was my first piece that I did after getting here, after moving here from Phoenix. And I was going through some, it was really difficult, just the transition of moving, getting into a new place. Um, the cultural differences of Phoenix and compared to Portland. And uh, I was looking for a job and it was just pretty stressful at that point. But because I, was unemployed, I had a bunch of time to make art. <laughs> so I started this and just got super into it, dove straight in and just um, finished it fairly quick because I was just so addicted to just going back and working on it. What do you think this one represents? Because this one seems to be a little bit more ambiguous in meaning than maybe the other two. Like, I don't exactly know right off the bat what 
it is other than it being kind of just the dark side of life or something it seems almost very kind of kind of spooky you know something you'd see on like a halloween night that would scare you a little bit (laughs) um i think that owl i mean i still find different symbolism in it but i think the owls represent representative of um i guess maybe my journey from phoenix to portland and i kind of felt like i was traveling into the dark or the unknown because i didn't know didn't really have much plan for when i got here i didn't really know what i was going to do i kind of just decided to do it and so yeah i think it was just kind of like flying into the unknown and it was scary and it was um unsettling a little bit and i didn't know anyone here so i was kind of isolated and was starting over um but i think i knew that there was so much potential and so much growth that Mm. was available here um so i think that's maybe what it represents and it's sitting on the tree so it's um showing that it's it has stability but there's there's potential for growth because there's things growing up around it. And there's kind of little um, energetic, little swirly things coming off of it. Mm -hmm. And the moon is there to guide it. Yeah. uh, I know the owl uh, traditionally is a symbol of uh, wisdom and associated with Athena in particular. What is the, meaning of the red moon is it like one of those blood moon type of deals yeah i guess so i think i was just really drawn to that maybe because red is such a powerful color um i was really trying to become aware of my own power in this new venture that i was on um and yeah i named it renewal because it was it was my renewal. It was um, starting over, and the the wisdom of the owl, or maybe calling upon the wisdom to help guide me through this new adventure that I was on. There's so there's so much going on with the like tree branch that it's on, like the things that are sprouting out. They look like they have little spider webs in between them. Yeah, and the actual tree looks like. I don't even know, like hair <laughs> or tentacles or something. I don't know. Oh exactly yeah, all the little lines and everything. Yeah, it looks like it's like the underside of like a tentacle, or that it's like it could be like a strand of hair or something. Right. Well, I tend to get lost with all these tiny details and things. I think because that's another side of the therapeutic side of it is yeah. like just like lost in it and you just go with it and you're just kind of like oh i'm just gonna do this and you don't really necessarily think like i'm trying to make this look like this yeah kind of just looking for like the design to be well it's it's very it's very interesting and i uh i like this one a lot how do you um for these paintings we went through and for this one this looks like this is a watercolor right yeah it's watercolor pen and ink so all the tiny little lines i use a nib pen and dip it in like an acrylic based ink mm. and draw with it. How do you choose the color schemes for these paintings? Like, 
do you have a general feeling of what you're going to do or do you just start doing something and you just mess around because this one seems pretty controlled in its color scheme it's really just red and black more or less and shades of those did you decide like i'm going for this kind of red and black feel or is it something that just happens as you go along um maybe a little bit of both i don't usually i know some artists will actually make a color palette for their piece before they actually start mm. it to make sure the colors you know all flow together um, for some reason, I've never been able to do that because the planning aspect of it takes away the the fun of it sometimes for me or like the therapeutic expression of it. So sometimes I just like to be intuitive with it. And if I'm drawn to a certain color, I will use that color. Mm -hmm. um, so this one was, I think I did want to stay a little more simplistic with it also because it, it is kind of more nighttime. So I didn't want to have too many colors in there. And I think the contrast of just the two main colors really makes it pop a lot more. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to try out this kind of game that you can do as part of art therapy with something like this. And it basically goes with, uh, it's like interacting with the image. So I'm just gonna ask you like a question or two about it. Uh, wh what do you think the owl is looking at? Ooh, um, maybe it's looking into the future it's looking into the mm. yeah into into the unknown it's coming out of the past and looking towards the future it totally does look like it's like epically looking into the future yeah. <laughs> that's on point um what do you think the owl would say to you if if you walked up to it and it like looked at you what do you think it would say if it could talk like telepathically or whatever <laughs> um i think it would say Considering where I was at that point when I made it, I think it would say, um, you know who you are, you're, you're doing great. Don't be afraid. <laughs> awesome. Hoot hoot. Hoot hoot. <laughs> All right, and I think this is the, I think this is the last of the paintings. Okay, so this one, is this just um, ink or is this? It's Graphite? Yeah, it's graphite pencil. Mm. This one is particularly interesting. This looks like something out of those, one of those alchemical books uh, of like symbolism. Mm -hmm. So uh, this one, it seems like you probably had a little bit more forethought-ish. So what's the, what's the meaning of it? Because there's, uh, there's a lot going on here. I remember um, when I first met you, I asked you a little bit about this, but we can talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, so I named it the cycle, and mm -hmm. um, I actually there's not a whole lot of forethought in this one either. <laughs> I started with the heart in the center, the anatomical heart, and then I believe I started drawing the the head and the face above it, and then I decided to turn it into an hourglass. So the hourglass is represent, re representative of um, time, of course. And then in the bottom part, it's a fetus, basically, that's growing in the womb. Mm -hmm. And the heart kind of looks like it's bleeding, but I, th I think it's more of just like giving nutrients to the fetus that's growing. Mm -hmm. And behind the figure or the head um it's kind of a yin yang symbol mm -hmm. of 
duality, dark and light, feminine, masculine, and the wings are coming up out of it. And then on each side, there's the the boy and the girl, so it's representative of masculine and feminine and energies and kind of how we are as children being brought into the world. And we were kind of, we have this innocence and this wonder about what we've just been brought into basically. And we kind of look up at our, at our guides or our parents or our idols or whatever they are for direction. And so they're kind of just looking up and wonder at this crazy mythical being. Mm. And I think the, the lower parts are maybe the, it's like going down into the earth and it's grounding and it's rooting and it's pulling nutrients up out of the earth in order to sustain this new life and to give nutrients and to grow. Yeah, there's there's so much going on in this and there's so much specific symbolism that um, is found in the alchemical traditions that I don't know if you studied it at all, but it would be interesting if you had not really known about it because there's a lot of it in there. Um, for Okay, so starting off, there's obviously there's that aspect of uh, duality, the male and female, that's represented a lot throughout this. There's also this aspect of there being three worlds. And this is from uh, Norse mythology that the there's the world in the center where the fetus is, that's the human world above is the spiritual world. And below that is the kind of earthly, uh, I think they call it chthonic realm where all sorts of earth spirits and things of that nature live like more materially based and kind of below us. And humans are kind of caught in between. And in this painting, it's they're looking up towards like the heavenly sphere, but they they still live on the ground. So there's all the mountains and everything in the center. That is like a a, a representation of that um, that mythology of there being three realms. Even in, for example, Lord of the Rings, you know how they call it Middle Earth. Well, yeah. Middle Earth is the Middle Earth. It's like where they live. There's the above Earth and there's the below Earth. Uh, so there's that symbolism, which is very very apparent in this one and even i notice even the kind of angelic figure with the heart it even has like wings kind of more symbolic of the airy angelic type of realms what i find interesting is that uh yin yang like the part that's meant to be the dark aspect of it what is that drawn in there are those bubbles yeah they're kind of just little designs and abstract bubbles that i made uh, I'm not really sure where I was going with it, but yeah, I was just playing with the just design basically. And cause I didn't want to fill it in dark. I wanted it to be more, yeah, just like more design, more little, maybe spirits and little bubbles mm -hmm. that are going on inside of them. It looks kind of like it has that watery type of theme that was in your other uh, work. There's also a ton of what looks like roses. And I don't know if you meant them uh, on purpose, but in the alchemical uh, traditions, the rose has a lot of significance metaphorically. So if you didn't mean that, I like it would be, it would be probably awesome for you to look into what the uh, symbolism of the rose is. Cause there's the whole sect of the um, more occult traditions like the uh, ro uh, Rosicrucians, they're based around this like rose uh, metaphor. Um, 
and that kind of seems to symbolize the below realm. So it's, so this stuff is really fascinating and there's, there's really a lot to say about it. But first I want to ask you, what exposure do you have to these kind of mystical traditions? Like, is this something you read about when you were younger, watch movies? Um, I, I think when I was, I don't, I don't have a lot of um, background with it other than just like doing my own meditation and uh, just my own. I think I just have a lot of, I want to look under the veil of things and mm. I like to kind of peek into the, the, the darker realm or the realm that we aren't completely conscious of in this reality. So I think a lot of it is just symbolic of my own uh, exploration of that. Mm. And I do, I did start getting into kind of like metaphysical books and um, I got, I got really into um, natural healing and things like that. And I think that really started me on the path of looking at um, metaphysical things. And like you said, like we're talking about astral projection and dreams. I've always had super vivid dreams. And I think my dreams have influenced my art heavily. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it's just kind of a intuitive exploration of these other realms. It's a fascinating thing. Um, so Carl Jung uh, was a pioneer in terms of dream interpretation, and he, I've studied a lot of his work, so we can talk a little bit about dreams. What he found that was particularly very hard to uh, explain was that uh, his patients would have these rich, vivid dreams filled with all sorts of symbolism like this, um, where you know you could pick up a classical text on mythology and it literally, the dream was just that story perfectly with no detail missed. And these dreams were occurring to people who had never read any of that stuff. So there's this mystery of like, how does, uh, how, do the, how does the symbolism come through into somebody's mind of somebody who uh, hasn't actually studied this? And that's kind of where the idea of the archetypes and the collective unconscious comes from. And I think it offers some um, explanation, at least. You said you're always trying to like go beneath the veil. Well, in a sense, it's, it's believed that these symbolic myths, metaphors, they manifest in people's dreams, even if they haven't read or heard about it, because they're almost like elements of the psyche. And um, uh, even if someone hasn't had necessarily any conscious exposure to it, they can come through and offer guidance. And what's particularly interesting about this kind of stuff is that they are consistent, like different traditions will have a similar symbolism, even though they didn't communicate. So it's like, there is some meaning that's uh, coming through. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what are what are some dreams you had that uh, kind of inspired you in your art? And I'm gonna stop sharing here. Can you see me again? Yeah, I can. Um, I mean, so many. I have dreams, vivid dreams almost every night. Mm. Um, but ones that really stuck with me, uh, I. I tend to have snakes in my dreams and they're usually there some sort of a guide. Um, they're either something that I have to fight off or they're there to help me. So I've had dreams where I'm in the water element comes in again. 
I've had dreams where I'm like drowning in a pool of water and then there's this giant snake and it's like as big as the pool and it's huge and I'm in the water and it's basically trying to drown me and I have to battle it and basically kill it in order to survive and to get out of the water. Mm. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that, that's really interesting. So the, the, the snake the snake and the dragon and these kind of reptilian creatures a lot in classical symbolism they represent uh the dark side of life um they also represent chaos and water is obviously very it's a element thought to be very associated with uh the subconscious mind emotions the kind of fluidity of it all so i wonder i mean when you said that dream it just almost seemed like it was a direct translation to you trying to like escape from the chaos in your life and like create like meaning and create a sense of purpose, uh, which is something that you kind of always have to fight for in all those uh, myths, you know, the, the knight goes to like slay the dragon. So it's, it's a, it's a archetypal theme of the defeating of evil, the darker side of life, uh, defeating chaos in terms of, you know, things not having a purpose or meaning or being very scattered. Um, yeah. And having to face that in order to survive in order to get to the other side of it and like be able to take it down and know that you're strong enough to be able to face it. Yeah. There's this interesting theory I heard about uh, snakes and why they're kind of this symbol of danger in the psyche is that throughout uh human evolution especially earlier on when we lived in trees and things like that um snakes were like one of our biggest adversaries like especially i'm sure they were very large back a long time ago um so there's this idea that we evolved to be very like aware of snakes um and to know that they're bad without knowing anything like uh, a kid will be scared of a snake without you ever telling uh, them that snakes are dangerous it's like built into the psyche that like this is bad like this is dangerous this is like the enemy even in the um biblical metaphor like with the um garden of eden and adam and eve you know the 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 snake of temptation the dark force um it's seen as like this kind of adversarial aspect of humans uh in the eastern traditions though it's quite the opposite it's seen as a symbol of wisdom and like a bearer of wisdom so it has this dual nature, but I just wonder if that is like, so that originally that's like how the psyche formed, but it has gotten much more meaning than that because now it's, it's a symbol of not just literally snakes, but it's a symbol of all the things that are dangerous in a sense. Yeah. It's interesting that it has two different perspectives because I've also had dreams where there's all these snakes that are basically hanging down from, I guess from a tree or something, but they go on mm. forever. And I have to actually climb up them. I have to use the snakes to, as ropes basically to climb up, to get up wow. to the top. But they're all like- it's Like snakes talking. on ladders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're all like whispering to me and talking to me as I'm hanging on to them. And they're basically like, I have to, to get over the fear of it and trust them and know that I have to face them, that they're actually there to help me, even though I'm scared of it and they seem threatening. They're actually in some way, they're there to help me get over something or climb above, rise above something. Mm. 
Yeah, it's, uh, that aspect of them being having a dual nature is interesting. And I think is realistic because I think everything has a kind of dual nature. Even things that we think of as bad have a good side and vice, mm-hmm. uh, vice versa. Have you ever heard about the uh, the tradition of Asclepius and the dream temples in ancient Greece? No. So in ancient Greece, there was a group of, they were kind of like healer priests um, and they worshiped the god Asclepius who was kind of the Greek god of healing. And at those temples, they would have people uh, come there from around the world that were uh, sick or ill. Um, and they would go and sleep in a special room and they would basically share what their dreams were to the healer priests. And the, they would kind of pray for meaningful dreams. And the purpose of it was the dreams were meant to um, show the person how they needed to heal. So they kind of went to this temple for prophetic dreams in a sense. Um, and then these healer priests would interpret them. Uh, what's interesting though, is it's reported that all across the grounds of these kind of temples were, uh, they called them healing snakes, which literally they had snakes kind of crawling all around the area. So there's this old um, association of the snake and the healing paths. Obviously the uh, the rod of Asclepius, which you might see on uh, an ambulance, it's like the rod and the one snake. And then there's also the caduceus, which is the rod with the two snakes. They're both yeah. symbols of healing. The rod of Asclepius is the earlier one. The Asclepians, that's what I was uh, mentioning just now. It's a pretty old tradition. Um, but there's that, um, one of the explanations for it, and even the um, the caduceus, you know how one snake is light and other snake is usually dark? Mm-hmm. That there's this idea that um, the same things that brought harm could be healing and vice versa, that uh, things that are poisons can also be medicines. So there's this kind of like deep aspect of um, the duality of life and how nothing is, you know, straightforward, good or evil. And I think Carl Jung was very big on that point. Uh, He had a saying like, you can't reach the heights of heaven unless you have roots in hell. And this idea that you have to, the shadow side of life is also very important and real. And it's part of the meaning of life. And you can't like pretend it doesn't exist but you best to understand it and integrate it and see what it has to mean. Like some of your paintings where, you know, there's like a dark owl or dark priestess They're uh, that they represent the darker aspects of life, but they're not like evil. They're just maybe at first sight kind of hard to integrate, but they have some kind of message for us. You can't have the light without the dark. You have to kind of know what's going on underneath in order to, to really experience the light. And I think, um, I mean, I've got a lot of, I've gotten a lot of comments about my art um, that people find it scary or they wouldn't want to have it because it reminds them of things they don't want to think about. (laughs) Well, that's, your art must be really good then. (laughs) So I just think it's interesting because to me, I want to explore those things. And that's, Mm. that's what I want to do through my art. I kind of want to explore it because it's important to know what's going on under there because we need to be aware of what else is at play mm-hmm. under the surface and in order to, you know, really live basically because there's two aspects. Super important in, in these times of kind of division and conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. 
so Carl Jung lived around after the time of World War II. And his big point of why people should be interested in the dark side of life or the psyche in general is he basically said the, the greatest danger to humans is their own not understood psyche, right? Because it's it's not like it's not weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons that are dangerous. It's people that are dangerous because like people can make that choice and it's all based on their mind. And if they don't if humanity itself doesn't understand what it's doing and is self-destructive, that kind of stuff can happen. It's like, those are just tools. So the real danger is like the mind, the real danger is the mind of people and the mind of whole civilizations and the mind of people that leads to mass warfare and things like that. Because what's fascinating about wars and uh, phenomena like that is often there's this like, uh, almost like a hysteria that develops among the co- common population where, uh, for example, before World War One, people were like cheering in the streets. They were like very excited for this war. Um, obviously, they ended up regretting being cheerful because of what happened. And then World War Two is even worse than it. But people uh, were moved on like a mass scale. And that's what's the danger of these um, really big mass movements where we don't understand where they're going because that's kind of the story of history is these big group movements, you know, causing all sorts of changes. And um, yeah, it's interesting how the, how the psyche functions on a mass scale and how people who are kind of outside of it, like who are more self-aware and they don't fall into the kinds of things that uh, consume the mass psyche, they kind of become ostracized or, you know, they're the first ones to be political prisoners, for example. Yeah, Yeah, and we really see that happening in today's culture with everything. It's like, there kind of tends to be this group think where anyone kind of on the outside of it is ostracized or they're, you know, it's like cancel culture, they're canceled from the community or whatever. And it's, it's really unfortunate. And I, I hope that everyone can become more aware and become more aware of themselves and their darkness and their light and be able to come together as individuals Mm. so that we don't have to follow, you know, anything that's telling us we need to think in one way or do one thing, but to actually, you know, be able to learn for ourselves and think for ourselves and, um, yeah, just be aware of what's going on. Mm. I love that term groupthink from 1984 that uh that explains it very well and it's it's dangerous because it's very enticing as with all these Mm -hmm. kind of deep psychic things they kind of pull you in like even if you're not particularly interested in things like that it's very easy to get pulled into debates because it has so much charged energy with it Mm -hmm. the interesting thing i wanted to bring up about the kind of what they call cancel culture these days is there something that's like really missing from it that I haven't seen many people mention as being what's so wrong with it? Uh, I think what's so wrong with cancel culture is that there's no room for forgiveness, which is like, Jung would be like, okay, these people don't understand their shadows. They like think that they don't have a shadow and they're projecting it out hours right because if you say oh that person did a horrible thing and like they should never be forgiven they should be in prison forever and dead and whatever um that's first of all taking taking the fact that 
they can't like possibly reform and that like what they did was intentionally evil and they just are a bad person. There's nothing they can do to fix that. And it's also disregarding the ways that like all of us have dark sides and like pretending like it's like, I don't have a dark side. It's just all them. And like, they need to, it's, I, I think it's like, I don't know. I would call it like juvenile psychology or something to like actually think that all the wrong happens outside of you and like you have no part in it. Whereas we have a part in everything that happens. Yeah. I guess that's the ego that's always trying to tell us that, you know, we're perfect. We know what's up. We have all the answers, but all these other people, they don't know what's going on. So we'll just exile them from the community basically. And it's like, we're all people on our own paths and we all have the ability to learn and grow and evolve. And we all do that at different times. So it's always possible that someone can, you know, do learning on their own and come to a different conclusion or, you know, and people aren't necessarily consciously making bad decisions or consciously thinking one way or another. It's just like, and so much of it is what we're consuming in our society, just through media, through social media, through wanting to be a part of a community or a group and kind of being indoctrinated into those that ideology of the group basically and not you know kind of coming away from it and thinking for ourselves there's a lot of indoctrination happening these days over social media yeah so much it's it's (laughs) kind of startling actually in the past even just few months i've noticed all sorts of strange stuff with like facebook where now they'll kind of i don't know if you've noticed this but they'll like pin certain videos that you should watch about politics and they'll like pin things about like how vote voting works, like just in the Facebook thing. And I never, I don't know if you've seen this, but I never remember anything like this being on Facebook where they were, I've literally been joking around to my friends that social media uh, is becoming like the PR department for the government. It's like the official, like direct line of communication out to the people, which is super dangerous uh, because like we know what pro- a propaganda leads to. I mean, the rise of the Nazi party is like from propaganda, from very successful yeah. propaganda. Um, so all sorts of crazy things can happen when people aren't allowed to think for themselves and they, you know, they think that this is the only one truth and everyone thinks it. So, you know, I might as well think like that. And then the people who think differently, they're afraid to share anything because they'll just get flamed online. I know I, uh, <laughs> I get flamed online very often because I'll, I'll post like very controversial things just to make people think. Um, and I'll just get like personally attacked and I just watch and I'm just like, well, that's the state of the world right now. You can't really have a different opinion these days. Uh, without getting personally attacked based on your character. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. Yeah, it's like the algorithms are basically making up people's minds for them because it's just feeding them one side of things. So it's just more and more and more of that side. So then they're just, people actually start, they get sucked into it. Mm -hmm. They can't really see anything outside of that. So then when someone else comes in, like you with a different opinion, people are triggered by it because yeah. they're like, oh, that shouldn't no, even exist. That opinion shouldn't yeah. <laughs> exist. I've never heard of this opinion. Yeah, exactly. Mm. The algorithms are uh, with social media are very dangerous because not only does it limit people's opinion and uh, cause what they call an echo chamber where the person is just what they put out, they get more of back. So if they support this and that, they're going to get all sorts of posts of supporting this and that and they get this false opinion that everyone believes this and there's no reason to 
consider this as you know not a said and done thing but another thing that the algorithms do is it prioritizes kind of what is clickbaity what gets the most emotional rise and all of that rather than like true information or like reasonable arguments like a post that is uh very controversial in any direction it's going to get much more views just because it doesn't even matter if it makes any sense or if it's completely BS, it'll get more response just because of how the algorithm works where people are more likely to like slow down over it and it tracks things like that or more people are likely to engage. The post that I made that was very controversial got like an insane amount of comments and I don't really have much presence on Facebook, but it was like, it was like 20 likes and like 250 comments in like two days because I posted something really controversial. Honestly, actually, it really wasn't that controversial to be honest. Um, I basically posted, uh, like a, a, a question of the current situation with the quarantine and everything. And I kind of lined up some statistics, like these are the statistics of heart disease and this is COVID and you don't see like a world panic about heart disease, even though it kills like five times more people. Um, and like, maybe we should think of different plans for this. And man, I got so personally flamed someone, someone even like posted on, as like a comment, like, oh, like, how can you even post something like this? It's so inconsiderate. <laughs> and I'm just like, what did I say I was inconsiderate? I'm just, I'm just saying, like, got to talk about this. Like, you can't yeah. just let this, like, whether or not it's right. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know what the best answer is, but to not be allowed to discuss like things that affect us politically like that every day and to be seen as kind of heartless, if you even like bring up a fact. And I, I it wasn't like, a flame post. I wasn't like, all oh, you people who believe in the quarantine are stupid. Like I, it wasn't like an inflammatory post like that. It was more like, Hey guys, like, what about the quarantine? Like, maybe we should talk about yeah. it a little bit. Like, look at this. Yeah. People are just like personally attacking me. Like it, it was so interesting and a ton of people were supporting me, but what is interesting about it, that it, and this has happened before with those kinds of think for yourself posts that I've made is a lot of people will like direct message me and they'll be like, Hey, like, I totally agree with what you said. What other people are saying is ridiculous in terms of like all their insults and everything. Um, and what startles me about that is that people are afraid to like speak their opinion anymore because they feel like if they're not saying what their, what the main line opinion is, they'll get flamed because they do get flamed. So I got a ton of direct messages of people being, you know, not, actually commenting on the post, but saying that they support like what I was saying and they think people are like out of it for even getting so offended about it. Uh, but that's scary when whole groups of people feel like they're not, they can't share their opinion. They're not allowed to. So that's really dangerous. I think when people are afraid to speak openly, this is becoming a kind of 1984 type situation where it's the government's not like stopping us from speaking. Like we're the police. Yeah. We are our own police. We're our own prisoners and we're limiting our own ability to have opinions because of all this yeah. propaganda, obviously. Yeah, all the propaganda, everything's being shoved in our faces all the time and all the emotional responses to everything. Everyone is so emotional and triggered about everything. So no one wants to speak out if they're in agreement with you about this controversial topic. And now it's become so big that people can actually lose their jobs or they can lose their mm -hmm. whole social circle or you know opportunities that they have and it's become that big where you can just get dropped like that for just asking a question or just like wanting to open up a conversation mm -hmm. and it's unfortunate because there are so many people that support it but they're afraid to 
say it publicly because they're afraid of the same things. So we're just so divided. And I think if we, you know, we all need to be able to speak and have our own ideas. So important. And everyone should be able to discuss these things openly because I think that's the only thing that prevents like really bad things from happening. Because if you have like one side becomes too kind of powerful in their influence, it will just keep going in that direction until it becomes just frankly preposterous in some of the like assertions that were made. So um, they've been trying to cancel Joe Rogan for like the longest time. But what's funny is, have you seen this thing where I think it was like a month or two ago, uh, people were trying to dig up like past podcasts he did and like try to get him canceled because of those podcasts. They literally were, so Joey Diaz was on one of them. I don't know if you're familiar with him or or Joe Rogan in general. He's kind of like comedian. He's very like, he'll just say crazy jokes. You know, he doesn't really care about like political correctness and things like that. But there was like an old podcast where Joey Diaz said something that was like, related to like him having sex with women or something like that and joe rogan like laughed and people got angry at him or trying to cancel him because he laughed they were like he laughed so he agrees with it (laughs) i'm just like these people are retarded no no offense to people who have mental issues but i mean in the sense of like just like preposterous they're trying to cancel somebody for laughing at a joke that's like a new mental disconnect with people that they're like this avid about canceling people and it's it seems to be like one side of people that they're wanting to cancel if if the people they believe in or they you know idolize or whatever do things that they don't agree with they kind of just tend to ignore it and they kind of like turn a blind eye but then when it's on the other side they will try to exploit it and try to cancel people for it so it's like doesn't make any sense <laughs> i think it's a it's complex getting... thing and i think it's it has to do with something deep and psychological it's not like it like it isn't what it seems on the surface like i think it goes much deeper in terms of what like actually drives people to do things like that um and i think yeah, that's what... go ahead yeah so i think it, it comes down to the victim narrative that's like the fundamental like heart of these kind of ideas, which is this basic idea that my life is not as good as I want it to be because I'm a victim for this or that. I'm a victim either because I belong to this group or I'm a victim because somebody is doing something that I should be doing. And it becomes often the people who are attacked the most, if you've noticed, are people who are very like prominent, have a lot of influence or successful in what they do. They usually don't like care about anybody who's not widely known. Um, and I think it comes from this, like, like a really dark side of, uh, human minds, like the tendency to be jealous, but it's, it's like, not, it's not obvious jealousy. It's like covert jealousy where it's like, they see somebody doing very well and like, it makes them feel really bad about themselves because they feel like they should. And in order to kind of remedy that feeling, they'll like paint a narrative of like, oh, like they're cheating or they're just lucky or they're in like a special class and I'm like the victim. And like, that's why I'm not doing these things. It's because like, and it's this, like some aspects of it are obviously true. There are imbalances in in society for sure. Um, But to like, think of that as the main driving force of everything is a really limiting viewpoint, you know? And it'll keep you in that same place of like not doing what you want with your life 
because constantly blaming other people for why like you're not doing what you want to do is like a sure way to just continue the cycle yeah it's a lot easier than actually facing the fear of whatever it is you want to do and doing it anyways but instead of becoming a victim of it you kind of just stay in that comfortable spot and you blame everyone else for why your life is you know not the way you want it to be yeah i remember even on on this controversial post like many of the inflammatory comments came from this like strong victim narrative like like they started off like oh like you must have not like lost anyone or like you must have not had been affected by this like me like to even say something like that and it's like I've been affected by it as well um but even if I was affected in like a really deep way I don't necessarily think that my views would be very different so there's this idea that you know you I don't know that that's like that that's a good argument for anything that like because it makes you feel bad that like it shouldn't happen because of how you know it's it's interesting it's a really interesting thing that's happening in this country and obviously in the universities and, and things like that where those movements like very good intentioned obviously very good intentioned but they've kind of gone off the rails in a lot of ways when you know they're doing ridiculous things like firing professors for like protesting things, which, which are just frankly racist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because now you're in lockdown or quarantine, we're not able to actually connect with people. Mm -hmm. So now all we have is technology and the internet to be able to really have these conversations. And because there's no really humanity behind the posts or, you know, you're, you're not actually speaking. It's just writing. So, and you're not there personally. So it's easy for people to get all emotionally triggered and attack because it's, you're not physically there with that person. Mm -hmm. If we were able to physically be together, I think it would be a lot easier for us to have these conversations, mm -hmm. but instead we're kind of secluded and this is like our only platform to talk about it. And because people are so, you know, quick to cancel people or to jump on people, it makes it even harder because their voices aren't being heard or they're silencing themselves. So yeah, it's just this whole mess that we're in. <laughs> such a, such a good point that, this has become the main medium of uh, communication, like social media and all that. And what we know about all the algorithms and censoring that goes on, uh, on top of the fact that people, like they act differently online than they would in person. Like it was weird because going back to this this post, like some of these people were my uh, colleagues. So I'm a, I'm a naturopathic doctor and these are people that I went to school with and stuff. Um, and like, we were always on like friendly terms. We never had any issues, but they were like outright, like insulting me and stuff. And I'm like, they would never do that in person. But it's, yeah. it's weird with that disconnect, how it almost, it seems like it's okay to like, just berate somebody because they think differently than you. Whereas in person, like, it wouldn't go down like that. Cause I'd be just like, shut up. I don't want to talk to you if you're going to be like rude about it, yeah. you know? So yeah. It's weird. And it has its own, the issue is like really easy to get sucked into those arguments. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've definitely been there on Facebook. 
they're like long paragraph 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 they're fun though i will say it's it's fun to to engage in such a like jousting match is what i would call it but i don't know if it leads to anything good just leads to probably more division at the end yeah it seems like it and people are so quick to to jump on you and to assume that you're one on one side just because Mm. you basically questioned it so they assume that you're on the opposite side of them and then they start calling you names and they start saying that you're this this and this and it's like a checklist of things that that you must be if you have this thought or this opinion right there's so little room for like a middle ground on a lot of these things and it's uh it's unfortunate because a lot of these controversial things the middle ground is probably closer to the truth i would say like because it's more of a balanced perspective but that the middle ground is hated by both sides (laughs) so they get the most flack because like like if you're really far left then the middle ground to you looks like really far right and if you're really far right the middle ground looks to you like really far left so like everyone hates anyone with like reasonable opinions if they're like very polarized right because naturally they're gonna assume that like oh like you think something's wrong with the quarantine like you must support trump like literally that's that's the jump and and that's actually what i saw in the post it was like it was ridiculous but it's it's (laughs) it's a weird time right because we've obviously always had you know political division and things like that but i don't think we've ever had it on such a constant level like in your face like on the news on social media people talking about it where it's like you can't get away from it at least back in the day was politics was at the dinner table and like maybe a newspaper right but you can more or less like you know nobody was gonna like harass you in the grocery store for your political beliefs whereas i think we're getting pretty close to that these days yeah people are shaming people on the streets and at grocery stores for not following the rules for shame yeah <laughs> and it's, so, yeah i think it just goes deeper than that people aren't mm. looking within themselves and it's kind of just this service level of ego that's like projecting onto other people mm-hmm. and i think people think also that it's okay because they see other people doing it so they feel like oh like this other person's harassing them like i can harass them too because i'm right so yeah. i get that i get that right um just miss on the common human decency so to tie this back, how do you think art could influence this process? Like, do you think art can shape people's opinions in a way? Uh, or maybe just make them chill the F out? <laughs> well, it helps me to chill the F out, personally. So I think that's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think anything we can do to continue to bring beauty into the world and continue to make things with our own hands and share that with the world and share different perspectives and symbolism and and you know that's like that's soul work that's passion you know we have to keep doing those things we can't just go full full bore into this political warfare and media warfare like we have to go back to what brings us joy and what is I mean, yeah, what brings us joy and what life is comes down to and just like being able to connect and have some sort of solace or, or creative expression in it all mm. a way to just like get everything out. And a really bad sign is where, uh, where artists start to get censored. So obviously comedians are artists, right? So when a comedian 
um, can't like say a joke that is like meant to be, it's not meant to be like mean to anyone. It's meant to like show that there's like, there's some, you know, controversy in that area or there's some conflict. That's actually what makes people laugh. It's like a lot of times when somebody says something unexpected or like that you're not allowed to say, but they say it like so blatantly that it, it almost makes it funny to you that people aren't saying it. Um, yeah. But when comedians, you know, get censored for, for their acts, which are purely like, they're not political. They're, they don't care about those kind of things. They're just trying to get a laugh and not even in a harsh way. When that kind of stuff gets censored, that's when you know that, uh, like free speech is really at uh, at risk and uh, and art expression too. Um. Yeah, I know just this week through the election that the algorithms on Instagram have changed even more. So things are getting suppressed even more. So it's harder to, to see things from people because it's just, you know, it's the algorithm is now for the election and it's like suppressing everything else. So it's just like making things harder and harder to, to help us get things out there and to share things with the world and other people will be able to see them. Yeah, I really hope some kind of social media platform comes around that isn't that doesn't use these algorithms and isn't like, you know, a PR department of the government. Because I don't know if you've seen this, but I've literally seen on Facebook, like them, at, like re recommending and telling me to go get my flu shot. Oh, I know. I'm just like, what yeah. the hell? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. whether or not you like like flu shots, cool. Like, personally, yeah. I, I really believe in promoting my immune system and like not doing that route, but I'm not going to shame anybody for doing that. But the fact that like the social media is like recommending that to me is like a breach of right. like their, what they're there for. Like they're definitely overstepping their boundaries, let's say. Yeah. Well, I've had people start to ask me now if I've gotten my flu shot. Oh my God. Like, um, that's my personal information. It's really not even right for you to ask me. Like it, it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right to just go up yeah. to someone and ask them that. <laughs> yeah. If somebody asked me if I got my flu shot yet, I'd be like, I don't think I want to be friends with you anymore. Just for asking that question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> luckily yeah, I don't have friends like that. So yeah. <laughs> that starts this whole other debacle. And it's like, cause if you, you know, have a, an opinion that they don't agree with and it like takes you down this rabbit hole and yeah it's like they're the one that asked you in the first place so it's like almost asking for controversy in a way. yeah yeah and it's it's an issue too when like things that are kind of personal choices become like contentious where like really what it should be is like oh like you want to get that for your health like cool you don't want to get it cool but like the fact that people are like trying to push it or like are getting emotional about it uh, it's yeah. a really slippery slope and that's that's kind of why these kind of just like disease politics bother me a lot infectious disease politics because it makes it it makes everyone the enemy because like everyone is a potential carrier of the disease so like it makes you want to like allow them to be controlled or allow like things to because normally it would just be like, oh, you just support your own immune system. It's okay. But now it's like, oh, well, if you don't support your immune system or, or wear a mask, like you're putting me in danger. So it's like, like literally a division, not even between like groups, but literally between all humans. Like I was walking along the Willamette River today and it's like a pretty wide walkway. Like there's probably like 10 feet like that you can walk. 
And, you know, and this is obviously people's choices and everything. They're like 99% of people are wearing masks. We're like outside, we're outdoors along like a natural path. Obviously that's, you know, that's everybody's choice if they, if they want to do that or not, but one that's not legally mandated. It's only in, in like indoor public spaces from what I understand. Um, and also it doesn't make any sense. It's like, seems like hysteria. You're outside walking around on a natural trail. Like, um, (laughs) what are the, yeah, it's fresh air. Like what are the chances that, you know, even if somebody had COVID walk past you, what are the chances that you can actually get it? Like, I'm sure they're so low. That's like negligible. They would have to literally turn and cough in your face probably. Um, And people are already keeping their distance. So like just seeing that kind of stuff, I understand in like supermarkets and stuff and people are close together at events, mass events, but like you're outside in fresh air and like, we can't, we can't even have fresh air anymore. Like that bothers me. Yeah. You're supposed to be breathing that fresh air, not filtering it with a piece of fabric or whatever. Like you're out there for a reason to get the fresh air, to get the fresh air. Yeah. And it's, it's like fear and stuff because I think if people had better education, uh, instead of being scared into complying with these things, they were given better education on, you know, how to support their immune system, how to like do proper hygiene and all those things that like probably would make the most difference. But instead it's just like, it's pure fear of like avoid people and like wear a mask and don't go outside. Um, even though going outside in fresh air is like the best thing you could probably do, uh, going outside in the sunlight. It's yeah, no one's promoting it's bizarre can, world. Yeah. yeah. No one's promoting how you can boost your immune system naturally or all the things that actually help your immune system naturally. They're just, you know, forcing you to actually do things that aren't very healthy for you instead because it's all fear-based. Yeah, and uh, and this is a controversial uh, point here, but I think it's because a lot of the situation, this reaction is politically based, that it's not like meant yeah. to be just to help people. It's meant to uh, further an agenda. And of course, COVID exists and it's real and people are dying from it in large numbers, very unfortunate. But the reaction to it is a political reaction. It's not purely a, you know, let's protect the people. Because if it was like, you know, they'd be putting vitamin D in our water, vitamin C in our water. I mean, they put fluoride (laughs) in our water. They might as well put some vitamin D in there too. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I wouldn't mind, I guess. (laughs) Better just get sunlight though. Yeah, just go outside and eat healthy and take care of yourself. Mm. Have you found during this period of, you know, more time that you've you've been more creative or has it been more difficult for your creativity, the quarantine situation? Uh, yeah, it when it first happened, I was like, yes, I get to spend some time because I was working a day job at the time and I really hated the day job and it was just really unhealthy for me. So I was happy to not be there anymore so i thought that i was going to be able to create and do all this you know awesome creating and painting and it turned out to be really difficult because of just everything going on and not knowing what's going to happen and you know just like there's just so much going on so it's hard to to be able to create when everything is in flux and there's so much coming at you at every second. Mm. Um, and then also just trying to now keep my business, my own business going through this and being, being able to get out in front of people with my art and, you know, book different market 
gets and events and all these things during COVID and during these different lockdowns or pauses or whatever that keep happening. Um, so recently it's just been trying to focus on the business to keep, to keep it going. Mm. Even though I did start a new painting recently, um, which has been really nice, but it's been hard to really be creatively um, inspired. Yeah. And, you know, it's that idea of you don't know what you have until it's gone, kind of. And you don't really know, like, how the different factors that might have been taken for granted have such a big part of life. Like, just having a regular schedule or meeting up with friends for, like, coffee. How all those little things actually added to the quality of life and the ability to just be more creative. It's almost, I think of it in terms of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where there's this kind of this pyramid of like the needs of a human at the lowest level is like, you know, food, sleep, shelter, that kind of stuff. Then it's like, you know, social connection, then it's, and, but at the top of the pyramid is like meaningful activity and creation. It's like when you don't have the bottom of the pyramid, like you don't know where your paycheck's coming from. You haven't seen people in a while. Your shelter's an issue. Like it's really hard to create because our needs, like we have to meet our base needs first before we can expand out. And I think be, do what it, uh, what the meaning of being human is, which is to create and to do art because we're obviously meant to do much more than, you know, just survive. Um once we have survival, then we get the interesting stuff. Yeah. Then we get to thrive. Exactly. Just, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's hard to um, create when you're not grounded. You don't have a foundation and it's more, it's more of a struggle. It's really mm. almost impossible to create. I mean, I guess some people have done it through the struggle, but yeah, I find it really difficult to create and to have that space when I don't feel secure. Mm -hmm. in life you know it's unfortunate too that the the art spheres of life have uh been kind of disregarded or looked down upon like i always hear about them cutting art programs to schools and just considering like those kind of pursuits to not be as important because you know you can't get a job or you can't get money or whatever like that um Meanwhile, they're like what makes life worthwhile, like music and movies and all that stuff that everyone like life gets improved by drastically is done by people who like had such a hard time surviving doing what they did because of just the like cultural narratives and how society is kind of set up to not be easy for an artist. Like, you know, like how how hard it is, is it to make a living? as an artist who's trying to sell like paintings or something. I mean, it must be dang near impossible. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because especially here in Portland, um, there has been a lot of opportunities to be able to do that full time, um, which has been great. And I kind of was just first getting a taste of that when lockdown happened mm. and then everything kind of went away and then it came back a little bit and then it went away again. So now it's like this flux. And so now that I've seen that it's possible, I just want to keep going towards that because like, mm -hmm. that's, that's where it's at, you know, when I can be a full-time artist and do what I love and share it with the world and genuinely connect with people and get out and like actually have conversations with people and talk to them in a way that it's like genuine and you get to learn about each other like that's 
there's no beating that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, from this podcast, uh, people follow up and look at your art. So where can people uh, find where your art is and what's your Instagram? Uh, my Instagram is isabella.rain.art and Isabella is with a Z. And I'm on Etsy as well. My shop is called Bella Mind Creations. And those are the big two places to find my art. And do you have a website as well? I do. Um, it's still in the works, but it's just isabellarainart.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciated talking about your art. I think you're very talented. So I'm um, excited to see what you do in the next coming years. And I'll probably see you at one of those uh, market events uh, coming up. So that's where we originally met. I was uh, selling my herbal tinctures and then saw her art and was like, wow. So I was like, you want to be on the podcast? Anyway, so I hope yeah, you guys enjoyed the episode. Her. And sorry, go ahead. You're amazing too. So thank you. Check them out. They're at uh, ktherbs.com. If you made it this far, you get a special uh, 25% off bonus. Uh, use the keyword family promo code to get some nice organic natural healing for yourself. And also be sure to pick up some of Isabel's art because it's awesome and it's very fairly priced from what I've seen. She's not going to charge you like $500 for a print. So check it out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being on the show.